May God speak to you through today's message from Senior Pastor Mike McGowan. Good morning and welcome to Parkway Fellowship. So glad that you're here today. I also want to welcome those joining us by live video feed. Glad you guys are with us as well. Um, Now in this series, we've been talking about lies that can warp our thinking of God. Now, these aren't like bold-faced lies, okay? These are lies that are believable. And, and they're believable because either they sound true or really they feel like they're true. But they're still lies. And so today, we come to a lie that more people struggle with than would really care to admit. And if there's one of these lies in this series that mature Christ followers struggle with, it's this one. In fact, this is a lie that I have to continually remind myself is truly a lie. And the lie is this, is that God owes me something. It's the lie of God owes me something. See, we as Christ followers, because you know, we give up things for God, or you know, we do things for God, and because we help other people you know, become closer to God, the, the truth is, it's a very small step from that point to thinking that God owes me something. And, and, and if we, we peel back the layers of thinking in our mind, we will find that most of us believe some form of this lie. Because, you know, the truth is, if I've done all this stuff for God, I mean, why wouldn't he do something for me? Now, rather than me tell you, you know, one of my stories, I want you to hear from, from Colt and Lindy Melrose. Colt is the media pastor here at Parkway Fellowship. And I want you to hear how they have struggled with this lie for the past several years. So, let's watch. Before we moved to Parkway, I worked for a church in Northwest Indiana. We moved there in 2008, right after we got married. And we were in our mid-20s, and we knew that we wanted to start a family pretty quick. Two years after moving to Indiana, we were so excited to find out that we were pregnant. But seven weeks later, we found out that we had a miscarriage. Um, That was very tough. Quickly after that, we decided, well, let's start pursuing adoption through the state of Indiana, still trying to conceive on our own. There's mountains of paperwork and meetings and classes, and it's just a long process. We were nearly to the end of that process where we were beginning to receive referrals for children. And the Lord decided that it was time for us to move to Texas um, and really forced us to end that process there and and start again really from scratch here in Texas. And it took another two years, uh, but we were finally matched with the birth mother on September 3rd, 2013. We were thrilled. We got to go up a couple times and have lunch with her, and it was just um, such an exciting time to be expectant parents. Birth mother's due date arrived, and we were waiting anxiously. I had a call from the agency uh, while I was sitting here at my desk at work, and um, really was not the call I was expecting, um, but they apparently found out that she had delivered the boy uh, two weeks earlier and I guess chose to parent. There really wasn't much of an explanation. I remember feeling angry and frustrated and I didn't really 
even know how I was going to tell Lindy, um, but I, I was just disappointed and uh, confused. Um, I was very mad at our agency. Uh, I was frustrated with the birth mother. I'm certain I was upset with God. Why would he bring us this far again in the adoption process to, for it to all fall apart? Didn't he owe us this? This was how he was going to grow our family. This is what he uh, had set out before us, and we were following that. Or, I mean, we, we thought we were following exactly what God had laid before us, only to walk us up to the edge and what felt like let us fall off the cliff. I felt like I was owed an explanation, but there was no closure. Everything just abruptly ended. So we went home and walked the block and cried out to the Lord and cried out to a couple friends. They came over immediately and we just spent the night crying. My parents came into town and um, we felt pretty hopeless. Thanksgiving and Christmas were just really incredibly hard. We had planned for our family to look a certain way at that point, and everything changed uh, when we got the news. In January, I was reading in the Bible about Rachel and how she waited so long to get pregnant, and then the Lord opened her womb. And I thought, could I be so brave as to substitute my name in there and ask the Lord if He would do the same for me? Little did I know, I was already pregnant when I was reading those words. Uh, October uh, of 2014, just a year after this loss of uh, this expected son, the Lord uh, gave us Catherine Hope. So Katie's four months old now, and we are crazy about her and so grateful for the gift that the Lord gave us. You know, looking back throughout this whole process, you know, we, we knew in our heads the right answers and the right things to say. And we said those things in an effort to try and make our hearts believe it. But in our hearts, the day-to-day -day struggle, we battled with that idea that, you know, God did owe us something. God, why didn't you answer the prayers like we thought you should have? God, why didn't you do all of this like you had led us to believe you were going to do it? But after Katie was born, I think we uh, had a, a moment of rest from the trial and we could really look at it and say, you know, even if she hadn't been born, God, you still didn't owe us anything. And the reality is that she is an incredibly precious gift uh, from Him to us. Uh, not something that we've earned, not something that we deserve. She is a gift. No, I am thrilled that God has given them a child. You know, but the truth is, it doesn't always work out that way. But what I wanted you to see is that their struggle was real. And it lasted a long time. And it warped the way they viewed God and, and, and it affected their relationship with God for years. 
Uh, it caused a lot of grief and, and anguish and heartache and pain and confusion. So, you know, not only was infertility tough, but then when you pile on top of that the confusion of, you know, why is God not answering our prayer? I'm telling you, that is a heavy load to bear. You know, what, what is it we think that God owes us? You know, we think that God owes us good health, a life free of major problems. You know, teenagers that will listen to us. <laughs> Healthy children, a, a good marriage, a good retirement. You know, because here's the thing. We believe that because we've done some things for God, that therefore he's obligated to do some things for us. Why? Because that would be fair. And I'm telling you, when life's not fair, man, we get mad at God. I mean, why would God allow that to happen after all I've done for him? You know, like, like Colton Lindy Melrose, you know, why would God not let us get pregnant right away? I mean, there's people out there that don't even want babies that have them. And here we are, like, we would give this child a good home, and we would want to bring this child up in a way that this child would hopefully love and serve you, God. So why wouldn't you let that happen for us? It's just not fair, right? And the danger is, when we let fairness begin to govern our relationship with God, then we blame God when things aren't fair. And then, what's worse, when God does end up blessing us, we don't really enjoy those blessings because the truth is, we think that we deserve it. See, God's blessings at that point become expectations. And we all know that when we get something that's expected, that we don't enjoy it nearly as much as when we get something that's unexpected. I'm telling you, this lie is insidious. And so, and it, it sounds so harmless at the front end, but I'm telling you, it, it can really, really blacken our soul. So what are we to do? Well, pull out your message notes if you haven't done so already, and let's start by asking this question, okay? How do I combat this lie? How do I do that? Well, the way to do that is that I need to view everything good in life for what it is, as a gift from God, not as a repayment. I need to view the good things in my life as a gift from God, not as a repayment. Now, we can only do this if we view our good deeds the same way that God views our good deeds. But I'm going to warn you, you're not going to like what you're about to hear. And the reason you're not going to like it is because it's not going to seem very fair. But hang on. Because when we get to the end, there'll be some stuff that I think will make it so much better. So here's what the Bible says 
in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It says this. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Okay, God says that all of our good deeds, they're like filthy rags. No, and we look at that, and we think, you know, okay, our good deeds, they're but like a bunch of rags, dirty rags piled up in the corner. Okay, I mean, you know, you know, that's not good. You know, but the truth is, that doesn't really sound all that bad. Well, the Hebrew word for filthy rags is, it doesn't mean like a dirty dust rag, okay? That word actually means menstrual cloth. Okay, so that's what those rags really are. Okay, I know, like, that is shocking and graphic. But that's the point. It's supposed to be graphic, okay? Because that is how the Bible says that God views our good deeds. And so that makes us ask, we're like, okay, well, then what is the point of doing good deeds? Why would we even do those things? Well, the reason is, is because our good deeds point other people to God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, that we are to let our light shine before men so they may see our good deeds and praise our Father in heaven. But Isaiah's point in the verse that we just read is that our good deeds don't impress God. And we can't try to use them to leverage God to do what we want because our good deeds are like filthy rags. Think about it like this. Let's just say that, you know, you and I, we're getting to know each other, and, you know, so we've been hanging out, and, you know, and I start telling you things about my life, you know, not in a braggadocious sort of way, and I, you know, say, like, well, you know what, I give, you know, more than $10,000 a year to charity, and um, I'm completely honest at my job, like I've never cheated at all. In fact, when I'm given incorrect change, I make sure you know, that I always get it back. I, I volunteer at a homeless shelter every single week. I've never cheated on my spouse. In fact, my spouse and I, we go on a date night once a month. And I coach all of my kids' athletic teams. And you're thinking, okay, pretty nice guy. I'm kind of glad our families are becoming friends. And then I say this, I'll say, you know, well, I have actually murdered a few people along the way, <laughs> but no more than about a dozen or so, okay? And that's why we have to move about every year. So, you know, I'll probably be here another year or so, and then we're going to have to move along, you know? But, you know, would your son like to play on our kids' baseball team? <laughs> and you're like, what? Wait a minute. No, my kid doesn't want to play on your team. And no, we're not even friends anymore. In fact, we're going to move, like, tomorrow. All right? And because the point is, I mean, you know, you see how ridiculous that is. But the point is, is that you don't care at that stage of the game how many times I've coached my kid's baseball team. You don't care how honest I am at work. You don't care if my wife and I go on date nights. I've murdered a dozen or so people. Because murdering people 
kind of overshadows all of those other good things so that those good things don't really mean that much anymore. See, it's the same with our sin. Our sin so overshadows all of the good things that we've done that they just don't really carry that much weight. See, that's what we have a hard time grasping. We have a hard time grasping that it is our sins that sweep us away from God. And we have a hard time grasping that because the truth is we tend to grade sin. Like, you know, we say, well, I mean, that, that sin, that, that's not really even all that bad. Huh, that's it. I'm not even sure that sin even counts. But the truth of the matter is that to God, every sin counts. Now, it is true that some sins have different consequences. I mean, you know, the consequences for committing adultery are very different than the consequences of, you know, rolling through a stop sign. But the truth is, is that to God, every sin counts. And the sheer volume of our sins, and when I say sins, I'm talking about every bad thought, every unkind word, everything that we ever do that is wrong, just the sheer, sheer volume of that overwhelms and overshadows all of our good deeds. And so that God says, look, I mean, your good deeds, they're like a pile of dirty cloths in the corner. Okay. Now, that's the brutal truth that I told you you weren't going to like, okay? But now, here's where things get better. Because once we view our good deeds like that, the way that God views them, then it becomes easier to understand this verse. In James chapter 1, verse 17, the Bible says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So literally, every good thing that comes in our lives, you know, healthy children, a good job, a house, a car, an education, you know, living in America, all of those things are gifts from God. And why does he give us those things? You know, because we deserve them? No. Because God owes us something? No. He gives us those things because he is good, not because we are good. That's the truth of the matter. So every good thing I get in life, it comes as a gift from God himself. And yes, God gives good gifts even to people who I don't think deserve it. But the truth is, I don't deserve it either. And he gives them to me anyway, just like he gives them to you. And so you and I, we need to view the good things in life as gifts that we get from God, not as repayment for anything that we've ever done. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, there is a second key way that we can combat this lie, and that second key way is this, is that I need to appeal to God's love, not my own behavior. I need to appeal to God's love, 
not my own behavior. I want you to look at what David writes in Psalm chapter 6, the first four verses. He writes this, he says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I'm faint. O Lord, heal me. For my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. And I want you to underline the rest of this. Save me because of your unfailing love. Now, David was at a time, uh, he desperately needed God. Now, we don't know all of the specifics, but he really needed God to come through. And amazingly, David doesn't appeal to God based on anything that David's done in the past. You know, he doesn't say, God, answer my prayer because I'm the one that fought Goliath. David doesn't say, you know, it's because I fought great battles in your name and I won. Because I treated the former king Saul with dignity and respect. Or because I brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Or because I've been a good king and I haven't abused my power. Look, David doesn't appeal to any of that. In fact, none of those things even make the list. In David's time of great need, he only appeals to one thing. He appeals to God's love. That's it. And so he says, save me because of your unfailing love. Let me ask you. When you're in a desperate place and you really, really need God to answer your prayer, what reason do you give God for doing that? If you're like me, you start you know, reminding God of all the things that you've done for him as reasons why he should answer your prayer. Because, you know, because you've done all that, that now he owes you one. Or you start promising God all the things that you're going to do for him in the future. You know, God, if you'll just answer this prayer, then I'm going to do this, this, this. And honestly, it's really just the same lie of God owes you something, but you're banking on what you're going to do in the future instead of just what you've done in the past. But it's the same lie that you're cashing in on. So when you appeal to God, what do you normally appeal to? I want you to do something completely different. When you pray, I mean, when you really need God to come through, I want you to ask him to answer your prayer based on his love and on nothing else. You know, right now, I'm praying for someone that, you know, Amy and I, we really care about, and uh, this person has cancer. And the way I pray for this person is I say, God, please heal this person from cancer. Not because of anything I've done or anything that this other person's done. But I ask that you would heal this person of cancer based on your love for her. Please heal her, God. And that's how I pray. Now, let me caution you, okay? Look, this is not... You know, some magic wand that you can wave where now if you start praying in this way that God is all of a sudden obligated to you and that you're using it to manipulate God. Okay, look, God is not obligated to do anything that you and I tell him. He, he, he's God. 
And I've prayed to God and I've appealed to his love before and God has not answered my prayer the way I wanted him to. You know, and sometimes the most loving thing that God can do is to let someone's suffering end and take them to heaven. I mean, that, that's just true. But no matter how God answers your prayer, when you appeal to his love, you are praying in a very biblical and accurate way. Now, do you, do, do you appeal to God's love because like, somehow God's forgotten how much he loves you and you know, he just needs a little reminding? No, of course not. Okay, the only person that needs a little reminding is you and me. Because sometimes we forget how great God's love really is for each one of us. And in fact, when God looked down on this earth and he saw how our sins had separated us from him and how our sins literally had swept us away from God so, so that our opportunity to go to heaven had been swept away as well, that caused such pain in God's heart that God decided to do something about it. And so he sent his only son, his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross so that his death could pay the price for your sin and for mine so that our sins could be forgiven. And, and, and sometimes, as Christ followers, you know, we, we, we hear so often that Jesus has forgiven us of our sin that we become so accustomed to hearing it that we forget all that God really did by sending his son. We forget the amount of sacrifice that really took. I mean, think about it. God sent his son, okay, his only son, to earth and watched his son be nailed to a cross until he died. And why did God do that? God did that because he loves you and loves me so much that he wanted to provide a way that you and I could go to heaven when we die. Because here's the deal. Somebody's got to pay for your sins. Somebody's got to pay for it. And the only way for someone else to pay for your sins is if they don't have sins of their own that need to be paid for. Well, the only person that has ever lived a sinless life is Jesus Christ. And so therefore, he now becomes the only way that your sins could be paid for. And so God had to sacrifice his son, Jesus. I'm telling you, we can never forget that, ever. So when things happen in life and you, know, you desperately need God to step in, look, don't, don't, don't go down the road of thinking, you know, God owes me something, because he doesn't. In fact, here's the truth that dispels the lie. The truth is this, is that I owe God everything, and my only appeal is to his love for me. I owe God everything, and my only appeal is to his love for me. And if you ever forget this truth, it is so believable to think that God owes you something. You know, think about how tragic it would be if Colt and Lindy Melrose viewed their daughter not as a gift from God, but as something 
that God owed them, something that was deserved. So look, you and I, we fully have to embrace this truth in order to combat the lie. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to find your connection card and let's take some next, next steps so that we can practically put this into practice in our lives. Perhaps for you it's this first next step. I will not approach God like he owes me something. It's just a, a posture of approaching God. Would you approach it the right way? Would you approach him the right way? Next, I'll memorize Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel, shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Would you memorize that verse? Very, very powerful. Or memorize the next one. I'll memorize James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of, heavenly, of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Did you memorize that verse? Or perhaps it's this next one. I commit to view every good thing in my life as a gift from God, not something I earned or deserve. That's huge. Or this one. When I pray... I will regularly appeal to God's love as a reason for him to answer my prayer. Would you make that a commitment? I'll tell you, that's, it'll change so much when you pray. Or this last one. I will pray the prayer today to become a Christ follower for the first time in my life. Look, if you have never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive you and then pledge your life to go to heaven, you're not a Christ follower, not yet, but you can become one right now. There's a sample prayer right under these next steps on your sermon notes. If you've never prayed that prayer before and you'd like to do it right now, I'm going to give you a chance to pray that prayer right now. And for everybody else who's already done that, I'm going to give you a chance to pray silently for a few moments and ask God to help you follow through with the next steps that you've taken. So right now, everybody, bow your head, close your eyes, and let's take these next few moments and pray to God. Heavenly Father, I'm going to say thank you. Thank you that you have always loved us. Even when we have tried to use our good deeds to leverage you for our own gain. But I thank you, God, for the truth and the power of your word. And I also thank you that literally every good thing in our lives, everything is a gift from you. Help us to view it that way and not as something that we've been owed so help us to walk in the truth that everything is a gift from you. And the only thing that we can ever appeal to is your incredible love for us. And that is enough. And I ask that you would also bring us back next week as we conclude this Believable Lies series. And I ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this message. For more information about Parkway Fellowship, find us online at parkwayfellowship.com or facebook.com slash parkwayfellowship.
You can also download our mobile app for access to the most recent messages, video content, and much more. It is available both in the Apple App Store and Android's Google Play.